Father, we thank you so much that you provide for us everything uh, to be able to be holy. Thank you for your Holy Spirit, Father, and thank you that you, your presence is with us, Lord, that your love is with us. Thank you, Lord, for uh, providing this study time together. Help us, Lord, to have open hearts, and help us, Lord, to be ready to listen and hear what you have to say to us. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 And thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for the beautiful music you just sang our, Sunday, our lesson today. My parents went to school in the 1950s. My dad started in a small one-room school where they had eight different grades in the same room. He talked about for recess, they would go out on the playground without supervision. They would help each other get uh, drinks of water from the water pump. And then when the bell rang, they would quietly return to their seats. Later, my parents would attend the same high school. It was a large high school. But one day, my dad was describing a classmate that had been an occasional bully or troublemaker. And my mother said, I never saw that side of him. He never acted like that in front of me. And then the two of them went on to explain that the boys were generally on better behavior when the girls were around. They were less likely to misbehave and act up if the girls were present. And why was that? Well, because the girls generally acted like young ladies. That's what they were called back then, young ladies. My dad went on to explain that in all of his years of going to school, he never once, never once, heard a young girl cuss or swear. My mother agreed. I said, what about dirty jokes? What about innuendo? Did they ever tell anything like that? Any, la any ever laugh at stuff like that? They were horrified. No, no, no. That would never, never happen. Girls didn't talk like that, and boys didn't talk like that in front of young ladies. They went on to explain that for the most part, the girls in general were very clean in their speech. They were very clean in the way they dressed. They dressed fashionably but modestly. They were not dressing seductively or hypersexually with their classmates. Now, not to say that kids didn't get in trouble back then, because they did, but virtue and purity were considered honorable. Fast forward 60 years to the release of the groundbreaking cultural landmark cultural phenomenon, the romantic comedy, Bridesmaids. I did not see the movie, but it's said that the cast of women get to swear and use graphic, sexual, explicit language. They get to burp and drink heavily. They get to vomit and defecate all in a really funny way. Was the movie successful? Yes, it was a money-making blockbuster that crossed all lines. It, it, they found out that men liked it, men and women both liked it, young and old both liked it. It created what has become known as the bridesmaids effect. 
which is basically talking about the floodgates that opened for additional movies and shows like it as a result of it. They said, finally, women will get to be funny. And by funny, they mean raunchy. What the studios learned was that something that supposedly people did not want to see, women being vulgar and ra raunchy and crude, turns out they do want to see it. They went on to claim that it's just women being women, that finally women are getting to be honest about who they are and the way they think. They referred to this type of raunchy behavior as women getting to be real. They said women getting to talk and act filthy and raunchy was empowering. Listen to one male secular blogger. He wrote this. It used to be deemed shameful to behave in such a manner, especially in public. Openly trashy behavior is now not only tolerated, but encouraged by young men and women alike, end quote. Terms like ladylike and gentler sex, those are things of my dad's generation. Openly trashy behavior among women is the new normal. This morning, we want to discuss the topic of purity. What is purity? What does it look like? What would it look like in a porn-positive society? If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Titus chapter 2? Now, on your, on one of the papers I gave you have some announcements about Abide. On the flip side, it has all the verses that we're going to be using today. So um, we're going to be all over the place and we had quite a few to go over. So I have them on there if you want to just follow along there, especially if you want to be able to write on it. Uh, but if otherwise, um, turn in your Bibles to Titus chapter 2, verses 3 through 5. says this, Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Your homework this week was on virtue, purity. Paul said that we are to teach the younger women to be pure. Godly women are to be known by their purity. What does that mean? Well, let's start with a good definition. I have this on your paper. In the Greek, it is the word hagnos, it means faultless, uncontaminated, immaculate, clean. It originally meant that which awakens awe or that which excites reverence and leads us to our first point. God, number one, God is absolutely pure. God is absolutely faultless, uncontaminated, immaculate, clean, and he is most certainly that which awakens awe and excites reverence. No imperfections exist in him. Okay, now, that presents a problem. So if you want to turn to Revelation 21, or find that verse on your sheet, Revelation 21, verse 1, says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. 
And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. All right, now skip down to verse 27. Verse 27 from the same chapter says this, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Okay, here's the problem. The problem is that mankind cannot enter heaven or have fellowship with God if they are unclean, if they are not pure. All right, here's our next point, number two. Sin of every kind in any form to any degree is an infinite affront to God's holy character. There can be no fellowship between a holy God and sinful people. All right, let's imagine that we were to walk over to Highland Creek or maybe uh, the Concord Mills and take a survey. Go around and ask all the people, do, ask them if they think they are pure. Ask them, do you think that you are absolutely pure and without blemish? Now, most people see themselves as good. They haven't killed anyone. They haven't done any of the big bad stuff. But few, if any, would consider that they were pure and spotless and uncontaminated. The Bible tells us that no one is completely spotless and able to measure up to God's purity. That's the problem. Is there any hope? All right, here's the next point. Number three, God has made provision for unholy people to be purified and reconciled to himself. God has made provision. That raises the question, what's the provision? Here's our next point, number four. The sacrifice of Jesus covers all your sin and makes you 100% spotless and pure in God's eyes. Now, if you're a believer, you know this. This isn't new to you. God sent his only son, Jesus, who was fully man and yet completely and fully pure and without blemish to die as a sacrifice for our sin. When a person believes upon Jesus, God declares him pure. Okay, that is what is known as positional purity. And this is the next point on your paper. Number five, positional purity is those who believe in Jesus are forgiven and considered 100% pure in the eyes of God. Okay? Positional purity is something that's done for you. You may remember this. We talked about positional holiness when we talked about holiness in, in that book. Positional purity is granted to you on the basis of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Um, let's use the example of a bride to help us understand this a bit. God, he chooses you. He sets you apart. He makes you his bride. He cleans you up. He, he makes you a new creation. Okay, that is what we would consider positional purity. All right, now let's move on to our next point because we want to talk about practical purity. Practical purity is sanctification. This is the purity that you do. Now that you're a set-apart, cleaned-up bride, you are to practice purity. Now, you're to pursue purity. Now, how do we do that? Well, 
How do we grow in purity? Let's turn to Matthew 23. Matthew 23, starting in verse 25. This is Jesus speaking. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are, inside, they are full of greed and indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Okay, the Pharisees, those were the guys that were famous for all the added laws and the restrictions and all the do's and don'ts, all with the intended purpose of looking clean on the outside. All right, look what it says in verse 28. So you outwardly appear righteous to others. Okay, they wanted to appear, appear pure on the outside but they were not dealing with the heart. I want um, you to imagine for a minute. Let's say that we all gather together here for a lesson, and I announce to you that this week we're going to be studying purity. And in the interest of time, I've put together a little handbook, and I'm calling it the um, Abides Pursuing Purity Handbook. In chapter one, I have a list for you of all the current TV shows that you can and cannot watch. In chapter two, it's all about the Netflix. Chapter three has a list of all the clothes that you can and cannot wear. Chapter four is devoted to hair and makeup and jewelry. Oh, by the way, I have a digital version. You can download it right onto your phone and keep it with you wherever you go. Now, some of you, if you're like me, might think, I would love that. <laughs> Last week, I shared with you about my list keeping, how I kept a list of all those foods. I'm good at lists. It makes things easy. You know, let's say I'm sitting down to watch TV and I can't really know for sure if I should be watching it or, or maybe I'm trying to decide if I should wear something. Well, let's see what the handbook says. And you look and see. Ooh, I can watch this. But you see, Jesus would say that is hypocritical that it's totally hypocritical because you're trying to clean up the outside. You're trying to control behavior, but you've not addressed the heart. All right, here's our next point. Number seven, purity starts in the heart. The authors put it like this. It is not about merely appearing to be good. It's about opening up the depths of your heart to him and cooperatively embarking on a lifelong cleanup project, becoming in practice what he has made you positionally. Let's, let's think of the illustration of a bride. It would be unthinkable for a bride dressed in white to get down and roll around in the mud. Why? Because it's on the list? Because she's got a list somewhere? Don't roll around in the mud? No. She keeps herself clean because someone loves her and has made her a bride and dressed her in white. In her heart, she's a bride. And so she wants to keep herself clean and pure for her groom. Here's the next point, in our, and it's from the book. Number eight, a relationship with the Lord is not about following a list of do's and don'ts. It's about becoming in practice 
what God has made you positionally. Becoming in practice what God has made you positionally. Now, is that possible in a porn-positive society? Turn with me to 2 Peter, or check out 2 Peter on your papers. 2 Peter chapter 1, we studied this last week. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 2 says this, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason... Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge. I'm going to stop there. Peter is saying, yes, you do live in a porn-positive society, but you are not like others. If you are a believer, you have been given everything, everything pertaining to life and godliness. You've been empowered. You've been equipped. And so look what he says. For this very reason. Here's why. Here's why you've been empowered and equipped. Make every effort to supplement. Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. Can you pursue virtue without effort? Without work? Can you? No. No. Now, you don't work for positional purity, but you must work for practical purity. All right, here's our next point. Number nine, God wants us to work at purifying ourselves from every defilement and every vice. Let me put that another way. We are to make every effort to keep our wedding gown clean and spotless. We're going to get very practical for the remaining part of our time. <clears throat> Your book had two vices in particular that women need to make every effort to be purifying ourselves from. So we're going to spend some time talking about that. The first has to do with slander, which we have already studied, and here it is back again. But this time, or if you were here when we first went over that, we said it was the Greek word diabolos. Okay, dia meaning across, bolos meaning to throw or cast. You put them together, it means to cast through or to throw between so that there's division. Okay, in your Bible, sometimes the word is translated slanderer. Most often it is translated devil. And uh, I want you to see why. So turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. Or find that on your paper. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1 says this. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field and the Lord, that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Okay, do you see what's going on there? You know what that is? 
That's a cast through. That's a throw between. He wants there to be division between Eve and God. Okay, first glimpse of Satan that we have in the Bible, and what is he doing? He's slandering. He's slandering God. He is suggesting, he's trying to make God seem unreasonable or unkind or untrue because that's what he does. He is the great slanderer. All right, now, when we read the word diabolos, when it's translated slander, two of the three times it is being specifically addressed to women. Okay, and this really shouldn't surprise us. We've talked about this before. Our gender is the more talkative. One famous study said that women say 20,000 words a day. Men say 7,000. Okay, yeah, not 7,000. <laughs> okay, in other words, that's about a third as much as we talk. Okay, so, so um, we, we are... Our, our gender, it, we are generally more about the relationship than the task. We are generally the communicators. I've shared the story before about my sons, how they took a road trip. Now, the two of them can talk your ear off, but they take a road trip for five hours and sit in silence. And do you know what? Neither one of them said, is everything okay? Are you, are you mad at me? You know, no, Nothing like that is said. They're okay with the silence. Um, for us, we are uh, much more talkative, and so we're more likely to struggle with this. The, the book put it this way, Satan likes to take our strengths of speech and communication and turn them into weaknesses. Okay, so when it comes to our purity or virtue, we need to address our speech. Okay, let's um, start with the definition of slander, and I put this on your paper. Slander means to speak critically of another person with the intent to harm, even if the information is correct. Okay, now turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, 29. We want to talk about some of the numerous ways that women can slander. But the common denominator is always going to be that it harms. It damages. Listen to what Ephesians 4, 29 says. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Okay, that word corrupting, your versions may say unwholesome. It is a word used to describe rotting fish, rotting fruit. Now, the term corrupting talk is a very broad one. Okay, so for a teenage boy, corrupting talk could be innuendo, something that's sexually explicit. For a 30-year-old woman, it might be slander. Okay, so, and notice the uh, prohibition. No corrupting talk. None. Nada. Don't let it off of your lips. All right, now, here's number 10. If we wish to grow in virtue, we must have zero tolerance for the vice of slander. So then how do we deal with slander? Turn with me to Psalm 141.3, or find it. Psalm 141.3 says this, Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. What I want to do is go over a couple of different types of slander that the lesson mentioned, and then we also want to talk about some ways that we can obey this verse, particularly 
when it comes to slander. Now, what I did is I put a chart on your paper, and on the one side I have the different types of slander, and the other side I have the different types of guarding health. Okay, here we go. Number one, malign. Now, in the Greek New Testament, it was the word blasphemeo, okay? And it meant to blaspheme. That's what malign is to blaspheme, blaspheme. Okay, this one might involve cursing, insulting, saying something evil or abusive to someone or about someone, okay? You're driving down the road, somebody cuts you off, you yell, you're an idiot, or something like that. Let's say you watch your child who is playing with another child and, uh, or a sibling or a playmate, and the child says, you're, you're a stupid idiot, or you're a big baby, you can't do anything right. Okay, you have just watched your child malign, okay? And, and you need to take action. All right, a good first guarding question, particularly when you are tempted to malign, is ask, is it true? All right, is what you're about to say true? Is it completely true? Is it an exaggeration? Does it misrepresent the person in any way? Okay, because if it does, don't say it. You want to put it to death while it's in the thought process. Okay, here's the next form. The next form is, of slander is the talebearer. And we could call this gossip. Another name for this one. This is when we share juicy bits of information that um, could be absolutely true, but it casts the other person in an unfavorable way. Did you hear they're starting counseling? Did you hear she's going to be on medication? Did you hear they're going to have to sell that big new house of theirs they just built? Okay, now with Tailbearer, it might be true, but what we want to remember, and this is our next question, is what I'm about to say going to tear down or build up the person that I'm about to talk about? Okay, remember Ephesians 4.29 said, no corrupting talk, but only such as is good for building up. Okay, next form is the backbiter. Okay, now this is when somebody wants to share personal injuries or resentments. Maybe somebody said something or did something to you and you want the other person to know about it. You know, I was devastated. She had a party a while back ago and invited every child in the class except mine. Or they have really hurt my feelings. I have reached out to them several times and I am still have never been invited to one of their play dates. Now, with this one, you want to remember that the tongue is the instrument that reveals the heart. Okay, so here's our next guarding question. Is what I'm about to say revealing a need to forgive? Are you harboring unforgiveness? And is that about to come out in your speech? Okay, if so, don't let it pass the guard of your lips. Deal with it in your heart. All right, here's the next one. This is the whisperer. This is when we talk about people behind their backs and we say things that we would not say to their faces. Her dress was so short and tight. I don't know how the girl could move in that thing. I cannot believe the way she lets her kids run all over my house. I cannot believe the way she brings her kids sick to nursery. All right, now here's the thing. Everything you said might be true. It might be about things that need addressed. The problem is you're not having the discussion with the right person, and there is nothing edifying going on. 
Much of the problem with slander, it is most slander is a matter of saying something to the wrong person. All right, that brings us to our next guarding question. Am I saying this to the right person? All right, next on our list is a judge. All right, this is when we speak and we ascribe wrong motives to people even though we can't see or know their hearts or their circumstances. She's going back to work. She'd rather have a bigger house than stay home with her own kids. Have you seen what she's been posting? She thinks she's Joanna Gaines. <laughs> Good guarding question for this one. Is what I'm about to say feeding a sinful ego? Remember, everything about slander is about building ourselves up, putting someone else down. Okay, here's the next one. The critic. This is when we make negative comments about someone that may be true, but they just don't need to be said. His wife is so unattractive. I don't get that couple at all. Her kids are so annoying. That casserole was disgusting. Okay, with this one, um, we want to ask the question, is what I'm about to say kind? Is it needful? There is never, never an excuse to be unkind. So if what you're about to say is unkind, you want to stop it. You want to keep it at the gate and not let it out. Now, does all of this mean that we can never say anything critical or that we can never say anything negative or that we, could, we would never be able to address sin? No, 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 no. Go back and look at your definition. With slander, your intent is to do harm. There's nothing edifying going on when we're dealing with slander. Okay, so if what you're about to say, oh, with slander, it's all about making them look bad and you look good. All right? So if there is no edification going on, if what you're about to say, if it's not edifying, if it is not fitting for the occasion, if it is not bringing grace to those who hear, then stop it at the gate. I was listening to a sermon by Alistair Begg on the topic of slander, and he was sharing about the relationship that he had with his sisters. And he described it as just joyously harmonious. And he, and he credited that in part to the fact that he never talks to one sister about the other. And he never talks to one brother-in-law about the other. And I thought, wow, what, what, what wisdom. We would have so much more harmony in our relationships if we would rein in our slander. Okay, let's move on to our next advice. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3. Ephesians 5, 3 says this, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, 
has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Okay, we've talked about this before in length, so today we're going to do the speed version. But I want you to take a look at a couple of the words here. Paul says sexual immorality. You might want to underline that. That is the Greek word pornea, from which we get the word pornography. And listen to it. This is describing any illicit sexual activity outside the divine bounds established by God. All right, now the word impurity, that is referring to any moral uncleanness in thought, word, or deed. All right, now here's what I want you to understand. Paul has very purposely chosen words that are very broad in their meaning. Okay, so, so is he saying, well, they're very broad in the terms when he's talking about sexual immorality. Okay, so is, is, is Paul saying, don't read porn? Is he saying, do not fantasize romantic thoughts about your coworker or some guy you're not married to? Is he saying, don't dress in provocative, seductive clothing or read trashy romance novels? or have sex with animals, okay? What I'm saying is that the term is very broad. He has cast a very wide net. And he says, these things are not to be named among you. Some of your versions may say, not even a hint. You are a bride dressed in white. You are not to have even a hint of sexual immorality. Now, are you saying that I shouldn't finish that series I've started on Netflix? Or that I need to go through my closet and get rid of that one or that clingy tight dress? Or that I shouldn't follow that handsome guy that I do on Instagram? Okay, here, here's what I'm saying. God's word says that we are not to have even a hint of sexual, of sexual immorality in our lives. Why? Because the goal is purity. The goal is purity. You are a chosen, set-apart bride. Now, I want you to look at verse 4. It says, Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. Now, the world is telling us this is the new normal for women, because for women it's empowering, it's liberating. But Paul is saying we're to have no part in it. And then look what he says, but instead. All right now, we should recognize this because we've talked a lot about this. Always in scripture, we're being told, put something off, put something on. We're to put off the filthiness. We're to put off the foolish talk. And, but instead, what are we to do? What are we to put on? Verse four, let there be thanksgiving. Let there be thanksgiving. Notice in the middle of this passage about sexuality, we have in their instruction, let there be thanksgiving. We're to be thankful. Now, what's that all about? Well, while all this filthiness and foolish talk, we're not to have a part of that. Instead, we're just to walk around and have this general disposition of thankfulness. Perhaps, perhaps. But, but given the context, he could be saying that we're to be thankful and grateful for sex. All right, now notice what he says in verse 31, the same chapter. He says this, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery 
is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. All right, listen to how the um, uh, authors explained it. Covenantal sex testifies to the legal and the spiritual union that occurs when we enter into a covenant with Jesus. Sex outside of marriage covenant is incongruent with the storyline. In the act of sex, a husband and wife physically bear witness to the spiritual, supernatural, and legal joining that took place when they made their covenant. Sex bears witness that God has made two one. Here's our next point. Covenantal sex between a man and a wife tells the right story about the gospel. Okay, here's the deal. Our sexuality tells a story. It either tells a true story or it tells a lie. If an unmarried woman has sex or foreplay or whatever, it tells a story. If you dress pr provocatively and seductive in front of men that are not your husband, it tells a story. If you withhold sex from your very own husbands, it tells a story. What's your story? Marriage and covenantal sex are intended to tell the story of what it is like to be in a relationship with Jesus Christ. And here's the thing. Married or single, we are to be thankful for our sexuality and the role it plays in putting, on, in putting the light on the gospel of Jesus Christ. I wish when I was, had been teaching my children about sex that I had spent less time talking about all the do's and the don'ts and the rules and more time helping them understand what this means. To be honest, back then, I just didn't really get it. I want us to see one more thing. Verse 4, Paul says, Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. The world is going to be filthy and trashy and crude. They're celebrating that women do it. They're honoring women that do it. The actress and comedian Amy Schumer was recently named Woman of the Year by GQ magazine. Her acceptance speech was so filthy and vile and graphically explicit that even worldly, godless men in her audience were cringing and gasping. This is what we are told is the new normal. It's the new honorable. The world is telling you to be filthy and crude in what you watch and what you wear, to go ahead and roll around in the mud because it's empowering. But God would say to you, be pure. God would say, if you're a believer, be pure because the gospel is beautiful. You're to be pure. You're to have thankfulness and a right thinking about your sexuality. You're to be putting into practice what you are in position. And why do we do that? 
because then we tell the true story about who God is. Here's our last point. Purity is ravishingly beautiful and makes the gospel attractive and believable. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you. We praise you that you have set us aside and made us pure and provided, made provision for that. And Lord, I pray that we would be women that are recognizably pure as we go out into the society, go out into a society that is porn positive. I pray that we might display the beauty of the gospel in the way we think, in the way we speak, in the way we dress, in every aspect of our lives. And we will praise the name of Jesus for it. Amen.